All right, turn with me to Acts chapter number 9, and uh, we'll see a familiar passage, I think, for most people uh, today in Acts chapter number 9, and beginning there with verse number 1. And I'll encourage you to follow along in uh, your copy of the Bible or on your device, and uh, We'll begin there. Acts 9-1, the Bible says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, For one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for this uh, example of, of how you've worked in the lives of people in the past, and we pray that you'll teach us today how we might follow you and what we might learn about being disciples of Jesus and also being witnesses ourselves. And we pray, Father, uh, that you'll cleanse us, open our minds and our understanding by your Spirit, and we commit ourselves to you as listeners and worshipers in Jesus' name. Amen. 
we've come to a passage that's uh, so familiar that aspects of it are proverbial, even in common culture. In other words, you might find uh, someone who doesn't know all that much about church, but who could say they knew what it meant to have a Damascus Road experience. As we think about this uh, narrative of of Paul's life, Saul of Tarsus, who became uh, known to us as the Apostle, Paul, what we see is a radical redirection. That's what a Damascus Road experience would be uh, to someone, any common person, a radical redirection, a complete change of heart or change of course, and a, a thorough rearranging of life's priorities. That's what we would mean when we think about what occurs in this uh, Bible passage. The, we look at Paul, he's, the scripture begins by saying he's been breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But in uh, this story, we see this narrative, he does a complete about face and he stops breathing out threats and murder uh, toward the disciples of the Lord and becomes instead a witness of Christ to those who uh, he, he encounters and he goes into the synagogues and probably when we got to the last part of this passage and it says those in the synagogue said isn't this the one who has been sent out to persecute Christians and isn't this the one who's been murdering and arresting it may, it may have been it's speculated by commentators that the orders or the idea that Paul might be sent to Damascus to harass and arrest Christians originated in the uh, tabard or the synagogue in, in Damascus. So that's why they're incredulous. Wait a minute. You know, we've sent for someone who can disrupt Christians, who can persecute them, who can arrest them, and instead what we get is a gospel preacher. They're like, that's not what we ordered, but that's what they, they end up getting. The one who had given assent to violent persecution of the church became one of the persecuted. That's what happens. He signs on to be what he had been uh, to others, the object of violence and persecution. And when we follow the story of his life in the book of Acts, we see that's exactly what happened to him. In fact, when we go forward a little, we see Paul stoned and left for dead at Derby and Lystra and all these uh, cities where he went and proclaimed Christ. We see him in the middle of riots and arrest, and we see him shipwrecked, and we see him beaten uh, after incarceration. So the things he had been doing to others, he agreed to have happened to himself in becoming a follower of Christ. The one who's sent to annihilate Christians ends up willingly numbered among them. The adversary of faith becomes an advocate and a missionary. And this narrative shows us nothing is impossible for God. Sometimes we think there are these people, no way that person could ever come to God. Nothing is impossible for God. There's not anybody that God can't reach with his good news of Christ. It shows us that God can take any situation in a person's life and intervene with grace and power to transform and change that person's life as we see it in the example of Paul here in this story. But the other thing we should note is that there isn't just one person who becomes a a disciple. There are two disciples and two stories in this passage that are knit together. There's Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus, but also Ananias in this story, who's a disciple and through whom 
we will learn. And so in the passage today, what we'll see is necessities of serving and following Jesus. It's really what we saw in the passage last week as well. But we'll see these necessities. What does the scripture show us that people did in responding to Jesus that also we might need to do ourselves if we are going to follow him? And the first necessity that you see in the passage is that it's necessary to know him accurately. It's necessary to know him accurately. Saul begins in this passage with an inaccurate understanding of God that led him to behave the way that he did uh, to disrupt the spread of the Christian faith with violence and coercion. He tries to coerce people out of believing in Jesus and to interrupt their faith by being, you know, threatening them, arresting them. We've already seen previously the martyrdom of Stephen, the witness who uh, proclaims Christ and then is stoned to death. And we saw, saw that Saul stood by holding the garments of the one who stoned those uh, stoned that faithful witness, and so that's where we meet him. And he, we, it's uh, interesting. The Christian faith is referred to by this time already as the way. When it says he was on his, on his way, commissioned to persecute those of the way, it was the description that was given to Christian faith already by at this early time because that's what they were saying they were saying there is one way to God and it is through the, his son Jesus Christ alone it is through Jesus Messiah and so they took this from Jesus right Jesus said to them I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me and we're familiar with that Jesus was claiming Every other religion that claims to give us a pathway to God is inaccurate. And even the uh, system of faith that Paul himself had committed to previously was intended to be a bridge to introduce God's promise in the Messiah. It was intended to be the backstory and the uh, pathway leading up to the coming of Christ. And the disciples taught it this way. We see it earlier in Acts. They said, Peter, when he preached, said, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He, they said slightly differently, but in exactly, exactly the same way what Jesus had said. They, the disciples said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that there is not salvation in any other person. So Saul shows us that it's possible to be devout, but to be wrong. You know, I have people in my neighborhood occasionally that come and ring my doorbell. And you have to admire the fact that they would load up and come out to your neighborhood and ring your doorbell in in their zeal. And yet when I encounter them and talk with them, what you hear is not a biblical gospel. Who you meet in conversation with them and the description they give to you is not the biblical Jesus. And so what we, we know is that it's possible to be religious but wrong. And that's what's true about Saul in this story. He's zealous. He rigorously commits to a system of belief that contradicts God's own self-revelation. And so Jesus shows up to redirect him, to interrupt him, to instruct him correctly, actually, also. 
in this in the passage that we're studying today. So the biblical idea is that God himself revealed everything that we need to know and is telling his story through people and nations and prophets and then finally through Jesus himself who comes and says, I'm God, come from heaven to live here among people, to affirm the prophets, not to do away with the prophets, but to confirm them, and then in myself to fulfill the requirements of salvation. And so he comes, Paul, uh, Jesus comes in this vision to Paul to interrupt him and say, this is the correct way to know God. This is the correct way to know me. And so the scripture says, when we think about the 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 narrative that God gives, which I had this professor that used to say, it was an overarching story. And it is. That's what the Bible is when you read it. An overarching story. It moves to, forward toward the same idea that God told when he put people in the Garden of Eden orig, originally. He already had in his heart this understanding of what salvation would be when it finally came in Christ. In Galatians 4, 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, virgin born, perfect, in keeping all of the requirements of law because he was the perfect human, perfect person, God in human form. And the Bible says that's what was going on in God's self-revelation. And then also in Hebrews chapter 1, the very first thing you find there in explaining this idea of God's self-revelation is that the Bible says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Bible is saying that Jesus came and gave us revelation and that the Bible is this story this uh, overarching narrative of everything that God was doing and that Jesus came and confirmed it and proved in himself. And when, when it later talks about the, that Paul, through many evidences, proved that Jesus was the Messiah, it's because Jesus' life aligned with everything, that his behavior, his, the miracles he performed, everything that Jesus did, his complete innocence afforded an understanding that he was Messiah. And this is a pivotal and transitional time. Even now, uh, however many months or years it is after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, it's pivotal. People need to be listening. I thought about when I read this passage, I wonder, and I don't know because the Bible doesn't say, but I wonder if Saul ever met Jesus in person. You know, they lived in the same region. Paul is very, very angry about Jesus. It, it makes me wonder, did he hear his teaching? We know for sure that he considered Jesus a blasphemer, as did all of his opponents. All of Jesus' opponents, until they became believers, considered Jesus to be a blasphemer. And it's interesting when you see what Paul says about himself later on. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, 
persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. This is the this is the journey that he's on. First, he's like, Jesus is a blasphemer, but then he's like, no, I was the blasphemer because Jesus is who he claimed he was, and I was wrong. So Jesus is correcting this uh, the error, but we see how vehemently he is committed to this error. He's committed to it, but he gets interrupted almost violently when you read the story. You know, a light shines down from heaven. I don't know what else he could do except for what he does do, which is to become a follower of Jesus. Light shines, a voice comes, scales cover his eyes so that he can't see. He is completely impacted by the, the appearance and the, what's ha- happening to him. But another necessity we see in the story that is evident in Paul's behavior is it, if, we're, if we're to follow and serve Jesus, we must live repentantly. That's necessary. Live repentantly. Commit to a changed way of thinking and being. Saul had repentance foisted upon him through God's direct intervention in his circumstances. It says in the passage that Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, which for us is a meaningless phrase probably, unless you've heard it explained in church or Sunday school, but it's like in those days they would motivate an ox to do what they wanted with a sharp pointy object on at the end of a stick. And it, uh, so if someone is hitting you with the sharpened pointy stick, you know, you're likely to do what, the person with the sharp pointy stick is instructing you to do. And Jesus says to Paul, basically, in your circumstances right now, I'm hitting you with the sharp pointy stick. (laughs) It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to press back against the force that's coming to you. And it is a forceful encounter that he, he is having with God. The light shines, the voice speaks, scales come across his eyes. He was confronted with his wrong. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, he asked. He asked, I always think, two great questions in this passage. The first one is, who are you, Lord? The second is, what do you want me to do? Those are great discipleship questions. Who are you, Lord? We figure that out. Then secondly, what do you want me to do? And he asked both those questions in this encounter. He is disrupted in his course. Sometimes, maybe more subtly, God is doing this for us. You know, we don't necessarily, I don't know about you, I haven't had a light shine down, I haven't had scales come onto my eyes so that I was blinded, I haven't heard a voice or any of those things that happened to Saul. But I would say in my life, the circumstances that I was in when I came to faith in Christ were such that God was getting my attention. More subtly, but that's exactly what I felt. I felt like, um, you know how sometimes people talk about getting to the end of themselves? You get to the end of yourself? That's what I felt like. I felt like stuff had gotten so depressing and difficult, and it, and it was me. I was doing that to myself, that it began to feel like uh, my circumstances were a severe mercy. I've heard other people use that phrase, a severe mercy. 
It's like my life got so hard that I had nothing to do but go to God. And, I, and, and in retrospect, you're like, thank you, God. Thank you that you let my life get in that place. Although he didn't do it, I did it in my stubbornness and rebellion and uh, flawed decision-making. But I'm grateful that the circumstances in my life woke me up. And if that's happened to a person, then we should view it as a severe mercy. Thank you, God, that my life got so complicated that I finally came to see that I couldn't do life without you. That's what happened to me. And, I, and I'm grateful, you know, that that's what happened. If it takes a crisis to wake us up to God's reality, eventually we, we should come to thank God for that. We will, I believe. Our weakness may become our testimony. Paul would say later in the book of 2 Corinthians, in a passage, a passage we're familiar with, he says, For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In the same passage, he talks about the idea that um, our, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes what we need is to be aware that we need rescue. And so his, his strength is perfected in our weakness and grace seeps through the cracks in our brokenness and he comes into our life in brokenness often, not always, but often. And so Paul says, you know, when I think about my own journey, he was talking here about a thorn in the flesh. He said, I had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. And he says, when I think about it now, this is my perspective. I'm thankful that weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamities, because those things drive me into the need that I have for grace. He is on a futile quest. It cannot end well. Even though it feels like for him he's in control. He's on a futile quest, and it proves to be that. But his crisis is clarifying, and he ends up exhibiting humility, which is what God is always after in us, humility. The ability to say, I was wrong, I am wrong, and to express need and dependence. We, de- we depend on God, we need God. Thank God the way he is is that he comes to us and he helps us even if it feels severe. And he asked this great question, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? This is a loaded question that followers of Christ must consistently ask, but many times it's not the question that we want to ask. We should ask, what do you want me to do? But it's not always the question that we want to ask. But here's what we learn. We can either have a God-directed life or a self-directed lie. That's how it works. God-directed life, self-directed lie. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that we're familiar with, I'm sure, say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, it says, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We trust in the Lord with all our heart and don't lean on our own understanding. It doesn't mean we don't think and reason and work through things, but we come down on the side of what God has said to us about who he is, like he is in this passage doing in Saul's case. Saul left Jerusalem angry, vindictive, vehemently committed to destroying the Christian movement, but he arrived in Damascus blind, humbled, effective, helpless, and about to join the Christian movement. This is what God's doing in his life. 
And it's marvelous, like the psalm writer says. Also, in the passage, we see that we're, we are, it's necessary if we're going to serve and follow Jesus to serve him courageously because, again, we're introduced not only to Saul but to Ananias in this passage. And Ananias is, calls him a certain disciple who is in Damascus, already a follower of Jesus who Jesus also speaks to, and he says, Here am I, Lord. And he tells him, Arise and go to the home of someone named Judas, and you'll encounter there Saul of Tarsus. And he's praying in a vision. He's seen someone who just happens to be named you coming to him, Ananias. He's seen that person coming to him in a vision to restore his sight. And so Ananias isn't so sure about this instruction because he already knew about Saul. And he didn't know about the Damascus Road part yet. He only knew about the murdering Christians part. So he's not really excited to go to Judas' home and to meet this person. And uh, I, I like this quote. I, uh, it was commit, uh, a person named Dorothy Bernard said, Courage is fear that has said its prayers. And that's what he, he gets, fear that said its prayers. He's, he's afraid, but and he susses it out with God, right? He's talking to God and saying, you know, this, what about you know, the fact that I know that Saul has been murdering Christians and God tells him, Jesus tells him, go. And, and, you know, but then he tells him again after he discusses it, go. He doesn't uh, rescind his order. He's assured by God, but he's also conscious of the fact that his obedience is going to cause him to be uncomfortable. Our Western mindset has led us to think that faith is always only about our personal comfort. And yet, what we see in the Bible when we read the accounts of people who are following Jesus is that they often were placed into positions of being made uncomfortable because they were obedient to Jesus. So, I like how in this narrative he tells him, listen, you go to Saul and tell him how many things he's going to have to suffer for my namesake. It's like you who are afraid of suffering, you're uh, going to tell this person that you are on a pathway to suffering now because of your follow- you're following me and proclaiming me. So we'd all like for our faith to feel heroic. People fantasize all the time. We do fantasize about things, all of us, all the time. And we always want to be heroic in our fantasies, you know. We always want to be the the hero. But um, we think about, like, what we sign on for when we follow Christ isn't always going to make us feel heroic. We, We, you know, I thought we... I uh, want people throwing parades for us, but we don't want them throwing things at us. You know? I shared the story of, uh, recently about the um, George Whitfield, who down in Savannah, Whitfield Avenue, my GPS always mispronounces it Whitefield. It's Whitfield, George Whitfield, evangelist who would open air preach in front of thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and they hated Whitfield, and they would throw dead cats at him when he was preaching. <laughs> which is um, pretty funny. But he he was committed to the gospel, but along with his devotion to Christ went unpop, you know, unpopularity with certain people and persecution and hate that was directed at him for nothing more than being obedient to the gospel. And so Ananias had to overcome his fear 
and go his way and meet Saul, who God was going to show how many things he must suffer for his namesake. And he went his way and fulfilled God's purpose. The scripture shows us he is chosen, sent, reluctant, afraid, but ultimately obedient. That may be that may be how things uh, work out for us, is that we may be chosen, sent, afraid, and, and reluctant, but uh, ultimately what we want to be is obedient. And then what the passage shows us also is that we uh, uh, it's necessary for us to mature in him progressively. Saul catches on really quickly. He's a fast learner, which we would think he would be because he exhibits, you know, you know, very high intelligence in what we can see about him in Scripture. God chooses someone. Saul himself would later write and say that God chooses the foolish things and the weak things. But in Saul, he seems to have found a very intelligent person. And he catches on quickly about what it means to be a disciple. And you see that in the last part of this passage. The Bible says in, uh, that he, his eyes are opened. And that's, he writes about that himself later to the Ephesians. Having your eyes, the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's what happened to him. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's what he is discovering and later would write about in uh, the epistles to the uh, churches and believers. And this one at Ephesus. He is, uh, the Bible says he's baptized. Look at what he does in response to knowing Jesus. His eyes are opened. He's baptized. He joins himself to other followers of Jesus to know and be known. He immediately preaches Jesus. We had a new member class today, and these are the things that we talked about. What do people do when they come to know Jesus? These are the things that they do, what Paul did in Scripture. You can see that he, he is baptized in obedience to Christ, that he joins himself to other believers because nobody is supposed to uh, be walking this journey on their own. We need community and we need connection and we need accountability and all the things that go along with being part of a believing congregation of, of worshipers. And so that's what he does. He tells the story of salvation to others, increasing in strength, the scripture says, as he's obedient and as he shares and showing that Jesus is the Christ, demonstrating and proving from the Scripture because he already had this background. The, uh, we know that he was, it's uh, believed uh, Gamaliel was his uh, instructor. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the Bible says. So he's steeped in the Old Testament. He knows the Scriptures. And so when he comes to know Christ, he's got this powerful background from which he is able to instruct them and say that these teach us about the Messiah. And so discipleship, we understand, happens along a continuum, happens in a process. We talked about this in our class earlier that a disciple is a learner. That's what a disciple is. It's someone who not only is... Uh, gathering information to have between their ears. They're gathering uh, insight to practice in, in their life. So a disciple should be growing and maturing. And when we know this, Jesus, when he talked to his disciples, you remember what he told them? He, he demonstrated for them servanthood in washing their feet. And he said, uh, You've, do you see what I've done to you? 
If I, being your teacher, have washed your feet, he says, you ought to be uh, washing each other's feet. And he said, blessed are you if you do these things, right? He didn't say blessed are you if you know these things. He said, blessed are you if you do them. So discipleship means that we take the truth that we know and we practice it in all our life situations all the time. And life is happening all the time. And we have this resource of truth that God shows us to apply to our situation so that we know how to be humble, so that we know how to forgive, how to forbear, that we know how to stand when we ought to stand, and we know how to behave in situations so that grace characterizes our personality and we're salt and we're light in the world. And and so in his life we see that he catches on And he applies truth, and he starts to live it out. And he didn't drag his feet because dragging your feet is unhelpful. Sometimes that's what people do. It's why in any congregation you will find believers who are all over the map when it comes to their development and maturity. Or you, if you think about your life, or I think about mine, I will see that there are seasons in my life where it's like, man, if I had just leaned into applying truth, being submissive, being vulnerable. You know, we can keep fast forward and not so that we become um, arrogant, but so that we become like Jesus. So that we become like Jesus who cared, who said about himself, take my yoke upon you, learn me, because I'm humble and lowly in heart. And he says, you'll find rest for your soul in me. So that's what happens to believers as we continue to mature, but in churches you find people that are all over the place because your will is still a part of this. Your your commitment, your behavior under God's lordship, under Christ's lordship. But dragging our feet's not helpful, and Paul doesn't drag his feet. And what he finds is that God joins the wholehearted. He empowers the willing. He is strengthened, and he's strengthened because of he, he obeys. God and God equips and enables and empowers when we say yes. I can't always understand John Piper. I've got a bunch of his books. I've got this book uh, called Future Grace that I'm like, man, this makes my head hurt. I'm going to retire one day and try to read that book, you know. But right now I'm like, when I try to read it, I'm like, this is like too deep. But he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life that I think anybody can understand really well. In fact, I would encourage everybody to read it. But in the opening chapter, he talks about growing up in a home that had a photo or picture framed in the kitchen. And the the photo, the framed quote said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Look, that's so powerful. Only one life will soon be passed. He says, only what's done for Christ will last. And, you know, the encouragement of the book is the encouragement of the Bible. Don't waste your life. Redeem your life because the days are wicked, the Scripture says. Jesus said we only find our life by giving it away and we lose it by hoarding it. You know, the person that's trying to hoard their life to do what they want with it without letting God speak into it is in the process of losing their life, according to what Jesus said. If you try to hoard your life for your own purposes, Jesus says you're losing your life every time you do that. But if we, he says if we surrender, if we say yes to him, we're in the process of finding 
what life really means all the time. So if, we, if everything isn't uh, filtered through the question, Lord, what do you want me to do? We're really losing our lives and wasting our lives. Real life is crossing a threshold. I remember thinking about this when it was so obvious to me that God wanted more of me than I was given as a follower of him, that it's like service is really like we come up to a threshold. Following Jesus is like we come up to this line almost, and it's like, will we step over and say yes to him and then do it again and again and again, saying yes to him? Because that's what discipleship looks like. It's we cross a threshold, we serve, we give ourselves away. We're willing to be used by God because he made us to be used by him. Even though Saul of Tarsus is wrong in this passage, God interrupted him and redirected his life to make him useful for his own purposes. He became one of, when we think about him, the most passionate missionaries. There have been passionate missionaries. He was committed at the end of his life to take the gospel to Spain. That was where his ambition was. When he was arrested, and according to tradition, he was uh, executed in a Roman under Roman uh, after he had been incarcerated. So his he was a passionate missionary, extensive theologian of Christian thought, given us the many of the epistles and the pastoral letters, and uh, at least thirteen letters of the New New Testament. We know that God inspired him to write. Even if God had only inspired him to write the book of Romans, it would have been incredibly helpful. But he wrote so much of the New Testament as the Holy Spirit worked through him. And he makes these incredible contributions. And God uses him remarkably beyond that. But he's not the hero. He's not the hero in the story. He is a human being who did the same thing that any of us can do, which is to say yes to God. And be used by God. And it, but he is bold enough to say later on, imitate me as I also am imitating Christ. Wouldn't that be uh, a remarkable thing to feel comfortable to say about yourself? And it should be our ambition, right? To be able to say to other people, hey, you imitate me. You watch me and you follow Jesus in the same way that I'm following Jesus. His obedience is worth studying, even if when we study him we see imperfection, which we will. D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist, American evangelist, is supposed to have said, the world has yet to see what God will do with someone fully consecrated to him. Actually, it was an older pastor, Henry Varley, who challenged Moody with these words, but Moody took them to heart himself. And are we affected by our salvation so that we desire to be fully consecrated to Christ? That's the goal, is that we would be affected so that we would be committed to be, being fully consecrated to him. Are we listening to interpret life and its events in view of his voice and calling and leadership? It requires us to be able to listen, and it won't always seem as loud to us as the message that Saul received along the Damascus Road, but it might seem that loud if we could quiet ourselves to listen and pay attention to our circumstances and ask God, what are you actually doing and saying to me now? Would you describe your experience this morning as moving progressively toward a more Christian, uh, mature Christian faith? 
you think about your own life, would you say, I can say yes. I, as I look back, there's progress. I'm moving in a direction that uh, because of obedience. And, and sometimes people will tell you, like, that means that you'll feel sometimes worse about yourself because when we move closer to a holy God, we see the, the stuff and the junk, right? When you get closer to the light, all the defects become more obvious. And so that may be the way it feels, but it's a good question to ask. Are we plateaued or are we regressing? There, the Bible calls that being backslidden. That's the word Jeremiah uses. It's not just the old southern preacher word. Jeremiah said it, backslidden. When we are studying these letters in Sunday school in Revelation, it's the same idea that's present there. You left the love that you had at first. You're not, your love for me is not what it was at first. The call on our life is to be continually repentant and surrendered and growing in our obedience. Today is a Sunday for us where we observe communion, where we observe the Lord's table. And so we're going to move into that now. And I want to read, uh, this is what was impressed on me today, Hebrews chapter number 2, just one verse of scripture that uh, talks about communion. And the invitation is always open for us to respond to the gospel. And, uh, it, you know, sometimes it looks different. Like today, uh, when we had new member training, there it's a pathway for people to respond to the gospel conversations with us are pathways for you to respond to the gospel and you're being invited today to respond in worship and I was thinking about this passage today and uh, this is it's simple Hebrews chapter 2 verse 13 the Bible says and again I will put my trust in him and again this is speaking about Jesus here I am and the children whom God has given me that is what this observance is today the Lord's table when we do it together it's us saying we're here with Jesus here we are we're the children that he's given to us we take elements and we ingest them they become us don't they that's what food does what do we say you are what are what you eat you know these elements that we take into ourselves we ingest they are us but they're also us in a symbolic way because they speak to who we are, that we are people, the children of God, that we belong to him together. And so we're going to invite you, if you are a follower of Christ, you're invited to participate in this observance where we ingest these elements as a way of expressing our belief that Jesus' blood was shed for us. The Bible says without shedding of blood, there's no remission. There no, there's no forgiveness that his body was given as the sacrifice, the holy lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And we worship by taking these elements into ourselves. I'm going to invite uh, Scott and uh, to come up. And I'm going to ask you now to stand with us if you would. Um, I know that for some folks the way you would prefer to participate is uh, through this. We have the sealed uh, cups that... Uh, you, you can take the uh, your communion that way. We take it in a manner that's called intention, which is like...